0: It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams. And guys, I don't know if you remember this, guys and girls, I don't know if you remember this, but back on episode 43, we had Jeremy Roll. He went through a lot of information and helped us out quite a bit because Jeremy's actually... A uh, passive, a full-time passive investor. If that makes any sense at all, a full-time passive investor. He's been doing this since 2002. Yes. Wow. Okay. Not full-time. Now I've been okay. doing
1: it full-time since 2007, but I started uh, passive in 2002.
0: All right. Excellent. And as we record this, this is episode 110. Jeremy is still holds the record on our podcast for having the most downloads per episode and that's for episode 77. So as we record this, uh, Jeremy's second episode that he came on the podcast, he was 43 and then 77, it is continuing to remain the most popular episode that we've ever had with the highest amount of downloads and we're over 100 episodes today. So thank you Jeremy for coming out with so much value. Jeremy continues to come to us with incredible amounts of value and today's no exception because it's all about the truth behind diversification from a passive real estate perspective, real estate investors perspective. So Jeremy, first off, welcome to the show. Welcome back to the show. How are you?
1: Good. Uh, Thanks. Thanks very much for having me on again. I'm actually really happy to hear about that, uh, the downloads. Um, if, uh, if, if you knew the secret sauce of why that is, let me know. But I'm just glad that it's, you know, the most important things were helping adding value to people.
0: So. I wish I could hack into the algorithms well enough. But hey, the first thing that I'm doing is I'm just having you back to see if we can boost it again. Um, but yeah, no, what that last one was out, if you go to 77 to the listeners, if you go to 77, what all that was about was the 10 steps to actually looking at a passive investment opportunity. So actually, three of those steps were three or four of those steps were all about the management team. But if you really want to see and understand and dissect how to be a safe passive investor, episode 77 helps a lot. Uh, So anyway, let's get into today the truth behind diversification. Uh, So who is this for today? Like who are we sharing this information with today, Jeremy? Yeah,
1: I think this makes the most sense for somebody who's looking to be or is already a passive investor in real estate. So that they're typically going into a, uh, what's called a syndication or a group scenario and opportunities where they're pulling a lot of investors together and they're literally being passive. Now, I should also explain that I tend to differentiate uh, between active and passive from a control perspective. So I give up control in exchange for diversification. And what that means is that it, I'm not referring to people who, who are some people call passive who maybe own a single family home rented to a tenant, they hire a third-party property manager, but they're not really doing anything day-to-day. They're making some decisions, doing some things. To me, they still have control, so they're not fully passive. That's not necessarily what, who this is for. This is for someone who's truly passive, can invest in a self-storage opportunity one day in a mobile home park the next day, in an apartment opportunity the next day. It can all be in different parts of the country, and they're doing it all from their home because they're reviewing opportunities from different operators who are pooling investors together, otherwise known as syndications.
0: Wonderful. Okay. Thank you for clarifying who it's for. So what does passive investing really mean then to you? So you already kind of said passive means totally passive, but uh, to further define what is diversification, um, uh, what would you answer to that?
1: So um, so passive to me, just again, to reiterate is you're trading control for diversification. Now, the question is, what is diversification? So uh, we were just talking about this uh, earlier today and you know, a lot of people tend to frame diversification as like, okay, I, have a, I want to put X amount of dollars into alternative investments or real estate or whatever it is, and that's my piece of the pie of everything that I have. How do I slice up that slice um, into the correct amount of slices to be diversified properly? So the very typical and very kind of uh, easy to understand example I'll give you because I talk to a lot of different investors brainstorming this stuff is very often I'll hear, you know, I want to take my money and put it across 20 things so I don't have more than 5% of that money into anything individually. It might be 10% individually. Some people do 10. It's really subjective. And by the way, I should mention, I'm not a financial advisor. So anything we're talking about today, just my perspective as an investor um, over 16 years of investing. And so um, diversification starts at the level of how do you carve up that slice of the pie or the pie itself? But then there's a second layer that I think a lot of people don't talk about That I tend to focus on, which is once you know how big each chunk should be that you're going to invest I tend to look for diversification across operators asset classes and geographies And I feel like if you're not diversified across all three and all three not just two of those three Then you're increasing your risk from a potential risk from a diversification perspective
0: All right. I am going to in a moment. I'm going to dissect the asset classes the geographies and the operators and I'm going to ask you why Uh, so that that is coming Uh, just get ready for it. So basically what you're saying though, is what diversification means to you is to not just be involved in 20 different opportunities, but to be involved into 20 different opportunities that have different asset classes, different geographies and different operators. Is that accurate?
1: Well, not a hundred percent in that some people may decide that if they're going to be across 20 things, they don't want to be in one location for more than three of them because the risk is three divided by 20. So let us say, let me give you just an easy to understand example. Let's say that I, I live in Los Angeles. Let's say there's a disastrous uh, uh, earthquake, and you don't have earthquake insurance, which actually may, a lot of people may not know this, but most people don't get earthquake insurance here because mm-hmm. it's too exorbitant from like a cost perspective. So you may say to yourself, I don't want to have more than three out of 20 or whatever, two out of 10 in LA because if, if an earthquake comes and devastates the building, but let's say it can go to zero just to make it simple i've now lost 20 percent of my pie which is a huge chunk of the pie by the way so not everybody would necessarily be okay with that but that's just an example same example could go with hurricane same example could go with a certain asset class let's say you invested all your money into large enclosed malls 10 years ago you'd have a problem right now a lot of them may be worthless or worth a lot less than you paid so you got to be diversified across asset class and then operator You know, this is very important because when you invest passively, the number one thing you're doing is making a bet on a person. That's the operator. And so for me, similar to like the disastrous earthquake example, if you ever encounter fraud or mismanagement or Ponzi scheme or whatever it is, you know, uh, like Bernie Madoff is a great example. Like if somebody would have not put more than 10 or 20% of money in in with Bernie Madoff and he kind of was a complete Ponzi scheme, it's definitely... Uh, a very bad scenario and it's going to hurt, but it's not going to destroy your entire financial picture. And so you got to approach the operators in a similar way. You just never know. There's always 1% risks to fraud and mismanagement. You can't get rid of them. You can't totally eliminate. You can do background checks and reduce them, but you can't eliminate them. And so similar idea across all three. Um, And so and geography also, another thing I want to point out is there's local economies, right? So let's say you live in somewhere in Kansas and you know your city really well, and you say, like, I want to put 100% of my money into my backyard because I understand where I'm living. Well, actually, let's use Flint, Michigan as an example. So that's great, but what happens 10 years later when Flint, Michigan has this very bad economic situation, and now all of your real estate holdings won't cover the debt, and you've got a problem. So you know, I, so there's examples across all three, and that's why I tend to focus on trying to get diversified across all three, but it doesn't mean, going back to your question, that you have to have 20 operators in 20 geographies and 20 okay. different
0: Okay, great. Yeah. So I might've made it sound like I meant that you have to have, yeah, 20 and 20 and 20. Um, I didn't even mean to say that, but it did sound like it. So I appreciate you covering it like that. Um, so let me, as a passive investor who's, who's wanting to get involved, maybe they have like your example, a million dollars and they, and they want to start diversifying and spreading their risk and spreading the reward. Um when should they be thinking about this and when should they be investing? What would you say to that?
1: Well as far as thinking about it, you want to think about it up front If you thought about it after you've now skipped your toe in three four five times You could have already gotten past the diversification threshold in, in any of those cla- any of those three categories That does not make sense and it, probably even more importantly You for sure want to think about how to carve out your pie or your slice right up front You don't want to make that mistake because it's hard to reverse all these decisions and these mistakes because these investments are typically very illiquid. And so you can't go onto your stock screen, press sell, and get your cash in three days. So you really want to think of all this upfront. Um, it's very important to pre-plan it. Um, and then there was another question you asked me. I'm sorry.
0: Uh, okay, yeah. So when is now a good time to invest? Uh, basically what I'm saying is a lot of people think we're at the very top of the market. Right now as we record this, we're in the third quarter. Of 2018 and some people are projecting a downturn Within this quarter or even uh, you know, two three years from now. So I guess to in your opinion as a passive investor with 16 years passive experience Would you say that it's a time to kind of sit on the sidelines or is it or is there ways of getting in?
1: Yeah, great question. So First thing I'll just let everybody know out there is that I'm very low risk, so much lower risk than most people. So first of all, I tend to invest for stabilized cash flow, maybe 80 to 100 percent occupied. I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow and not much has changed because I live off the cash flow. So I because of that, I've got to be ultra careful at this point in the cycle because I'm paying peak pricing or, or close to peak pricing for a potential deal. So if you're going to invest in a stabilized strategy, it's very dangerous right now. Right? because you're not creating any padding, you're not adding value, you're not adding value to the asset, you're not creating value to the asset once you invest in it, and if you buy it at the wrong price, there's no padding for any reduction in price to occur. Now, um, that being said, the way you get around that as a stabilized investor is that you have to look for unique pricing right now, and that's what I do. It makes it very, very hard. I like to tell people, like, if I can find something that's 10% below market rate, true market rate, that gives me some padding, and that puts me into a better starting position. So, you know, a lot of the times investing in real estate, it's really you're making your money on the buy. And you've got to be this is the wrong time to buy in general if you're looking at that stabilized strategy. Now, there's development that you can invest in, ground up development, and you can also do value add strategy. Those are a little bit different. Um, I think it also depends on the asset class. So some people would argue that senior living, for example, where the population is really booming. That demand's probably going to continue through a downturn for in many cases in many markets. If you've got an undersupplied market, you could start a development today. And as long as you're going to have the financing continue on, because that's a risk during a downturn, you might be okay. But then there's other obvious asset classes, like in places that are either overbuilt, like self-storage, there's a lot of areas now that are being overbuilt. Like, and so if you're going to jump into that and get into an overbuilt area, combined with where we are in, in the uh, you know in the cycle. Once there's a downturn, if there is a downturn, you may have a problem with your debt. Um, you know, the liquidity may be hard to get. And so in a value add strategy, you've got to look very carefully in the development. You've got to look at the debt, whether or not they can stop lending you that money or giving you your tranches as you phase out through development. So there is definitely a lot of risk from a liquidity perspective as well. It's not just valuation and peak pricing that could be a problem down the road. Um, that being said, like, there's always deals out there. Like, so I like using extreme examples to make sense. If somebody sold me, you know, I'm renting a house in Los Angeles. If somebody sold me this land at a dollar today to go and build a new house on it, I'd buy it. Even though I thought there was a downturn coming up because that's a no-brainer, right? So there's always deals out there. They're just much harder to find. You've got to be much more careful. And I honestly, in general, consider it a very, very dangerous time to invest. I'm a much happier seller than buyer. I'm personally involved in many sales right now to kind of capture the pricing. But there are strategies that are safer than others at this point in the cycle. Stabilized being probably the most risky because you're not adding any value. You're creating any padding. So,
0: Okay. Um, I want to touch on something that you uh, mentioned. And I want to kind of have the opposing view on it and see how I challenge you by bringing it up. And that was just to the uh, point of self-storage and overbuilding. And That's because we've had Jillian Sedotti, who's my personal attorney and Alison Kirschbaum on the on the show both of which have mentioned that when um, downturns happen that self-storage actually goes up uh, so unlike some asset classes that may go down in a downturn typically with history um, more people are actually using those self-storage units so they've gotten more busy or, and been able to pay their debts even better. Um, so what would you kind of say to that thought just on self-storage?
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And actually, it, I'm glad you clarified that because I, I kind of put two points together and I think they got mixed together wrong before. So I'm going to clarify because, by the way, I happen to know Allison and Jillian. I know both of them. So um, yeah, they're great people and they definitely know their stuff. So um, first of all, I would say that um, let me give you a statistic. kind of, I don't know the exact name of the association, but National National Association of Self-Storage or whatever the real name is, um, likes to say that the average occupancy rate across all the self-storage facilities during 2009, during the downturn, did not dip more than 1% during the worst part of the downturn because there's a lot of very strong continued demand for storage during downturns. And I actually agree with that. So I agree with with whoever said that um, in terms of on the show. Um, What I was... What I where I mixed two points together was the fact that some places are oversupplied and that's a challenge, right, on its own, right? Because you don't want to build an oversupply anywhere because no matter how much demand you have, if you have too much supply, it's going to be a problem. But then the other piece that I kind of, again, I didn't mix these well together, I apologize, is liquidity. So if you're going into a value-add self-storage facility or a development self-storage facility, I don't care if it's self-storage or any other asset class, once there's a downturn, liquidity tends to dry up to what degree, depends on the downturn, depends on what type of lending you're getting, depends on your asset class, your location. But I guess my point is that a lender is going to have a harder time giving you those phased out tranches and a development where there's an oversupply and liquidity stops versus where there isn't an oversupply and liquidity stops, just for example, just to simplify it. Right. So I kind of made a few points that were intertwined that were not very well done, obviously, but I do agree that self-storage does well during downturns compared to a lot of other asset classes on average. I, also think that liquidity is a challenge for a value ideal and a, and a development depending on your loan terms and when the loans are due and how you've them out and what the contracts look like. So, those are different points. I didn't mean to blend them together, but I think all, they're all important points.
0: All good, all good. Yeah, thank you for letting me kind of touch on that. So, you've answered this I, probably more than once actually on why is it important to be diversified, but let's uh, make it its own little question and uh, could you kind of cover that? What could go wrong if you didn't do this?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, the Bernie Madoff example is the most simplistic one you have, right? I mean, I, I've actually heard of cases, I'm not invested in any of these, where um, people invested in a uh, single family note fund and the person, the person who was running it, all their employees thought all the notes were legitimate, but literally only the founder somehow uh, was able to get away with literally all the, empl- every single employee except for them, and there were like 10, 20 employees. One day, the founder literally gets up and leaves the country, the employees come into work and they'll can't reach him, and then they quickly discover that you know this was all like some type of Ponzi scheme. So, you know, that is definitely like there is I, I like to say there's a lot of different 1% risks in any deal. And it's not just Ponzi schemes. It's like I can give you, I can come up with a lot of scenarios because I'm really low risk guy. So for yeah. example, your building burns down, whatever kind of building you have, um, you have insurance. You need to rebuild and you actually have insurance to cover lost revenue, for example, in the meantime. What happens if the, if the insurance company is saying, look, this was purposely done. Maybe you did it. We're not going to pay. You have to sue them. It could take years to get your money back. In the meantime, you may get foreclosed on the property. Right? You have taxes you have to pay. You may have to do cash calls like, from the investors to cover all this. So that deal could go to zero, right? Um, I mean, I can give you a lot of different random examples yeah
0: let's let 's go for out i actually i want to hear a few more examples of 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 operators of geographies and of asset classes i I would love to kind of pull out a few of the things that could go wrong if, if you if you could come up with them on sure. the spot
1: yeah and operators on a, on a little less of a you know, on a less extreme example on an operator side, if they're just not the best manager, they're not quite staying on top of the property, it's not as occupied as it could be because they're not putting as much effort into it, they're just not as good as managing it as you thought. You may have lower cash flow than you targeted, for example. So that could be balanced out by a lot of other different pieces there, and you have an average scenario where it's not hitting you as badly like if you have certain cash flow expectations. That's one example. Um, geography is really simple. You know, let's say you invest in Florida and there's a disastrous hurricane and, you know, it takes four years to rebuild because the insurance companies can't handle the claims um, and some of them go bankrupt. And eventually you get paid out, but they have to be taken over by the government. I'm just making this up. Right. So that's another example of a weather issue or geographical issue. We talked about local economy. That's a real problem. A lot of local economies eventually can go bad, especially if they're not well diversified themselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Flint had a problem with lack of diversification because the auto industry. Um, and that's why one of the things you want to look at when you're looking at local economy is diversification of employment, um, right? And where the future is heading. Um, so that, those are some examples of, of geography. And asset classes, uh, one great example is a large enclosed mall, right? Uh, Fifteen years ago, you could have gone into the best mall in your area, but now that mall could be literally closed, closed down. Um, so that could be a challenge. Um, you know, consumer trends change over time. And one of the things you really have to be careful as a passive investor because, you know, if, when I go into a deal, I'm typically investing 10 years out. It's a 10-year term, very common. Yeah. Yeah. And so I've got to think about, if I'm investing in a retail strip center today, I've got to think about what's going on with the internet, self-driving cars, and robots to affect jobs in a local area to determine if I think that it's got even just, never mind the correct tenant base to get through a downturn and all these other factors for the next 10 years. But also, um, does it... Is it even structurally the best makeup for where retailers are going? So for example, for those of you who live in like Texas, you know, I've seen, I've been to, I've invested in many areas of Texas and I've seen the Kroger's that are like 150,000 square feet, right? Amongst them all or the big box stores that are 50,000 square foot, bed, bath and beyond. Well, the trend is that a lot of those grocery stores, for example, are actually reducing in size and doing more fulfillment online. So if you have 150,000 square foot Kroger, where Kroger is going to reduce that in five years from now to 30,000 square feet, or if you're lucky, 50,000 square feet, what are you going to do with the other 100,000 square feet? And by the way, what's going to happen when the mall next to you had a Safeway instead of a Kroger and they have another 100,000 square feet? And now your, your rent's going to go down because there's too much supply in the market. So, you know, um, So by diversifying across asset classes, you can at least reduce the impact of some of these trends that could happen. So you can kind of go, trends change across all asset classes all the time, and some of them make some asset classes more favorable over time, like senior living. As of 2021, the baby boomer population is going to accelerate as far as demand for the asset class because of the age they're going to hit. So, you know, that's actually probably going to benefit from population trend and actually probably get a lot more growth. Uh, Whereas the malls, for example, might continue to decline. But the point is that if you get really well diversified across a lot of different asset classes, you can at least... Sleep better knowing that if one asset class has a problem, you've got only a couple of your eggs in that basket That's what it comes down to.
0: Awesome. So for the listeners, we basically Answered who it's for what it does how to do it uh, Or when to do it uh, and why it's so important We are about to get into the how so this is going to be the nitty-gritty of really learning um, how do you get into it? And, but we do have a quick word from our sponsor. So we'll take a quick break right here and we'll be right back with that. This episode of the Creative Real Estate Podcast is brought to you by both you and brought to you by the show itself. And we just wanted to say thank you, Jason. And I really appreciate having you as a listener. And we have an ask. We've got a quick ask. If you have. Uh, been listening to the show for a little while. You love the show and you haven't taken the time to leave a rating and a review. I just wanted to ask to see if you wouldn't mind uh, going into iTunes and doing a written review as well as a rating. Um, so that's our only ask. Let's get back to the show. Okay, so actually, before I really just let you just dive in and just start telling us how, I have a question and it's just, a, there is an opportunity that crossed our path. Okay, an opportunity from uh, somebody that's uh, a friend, local, and uh, knows a lot about what they're doing. But when they mentioned it, I started thinking about Tesla and how Tesla pretty much they don't have maintenance. uh, They don't have oil. Okay. So let me just tell you what this is. There is triple net lease opportunities Mm -hmm. where you can do, I don't remember if it's Napa Auto Parts, but it's just, it's an auto part store where they're asking to do a syndication to get involved into these triple net lease for, uh, uh, I guess it's like a grade A tenant that has been around for a long time. But then you kind of take a step back and you say, well, what's going on with the world right now with um, automating, uh, basically being able to order these parts way cheaper online, number one. Number two, Cars are changing. Number three, um, you know, oil is, is who knows, maybe oil will be around forever, but thinking just about the cars themselves, I've heard that the these electronic cars don't use it the same way, or fuel. and so kind of if you were okay, here's my question. Thanks for letting me lead up to it, but if you were offered an opportunity to get into a triple net lease with cash flows that meet your criteria for some type of auto parts store? uh, In these times, what what would your choice be?
1: Yeah. Great question. So again, just remember, I'm one person's perspective. I invest a certain way. And so this might be a perfect fit for 99 other people you would ask, right? So for me, the reason why it's not a good fit right off the bat is a lack of tenant diversification, right? So It's funny, we didn't talk about that in the asset class. You can kind of get into lower and lower levels of diversification, but this is a great example. So um, when I invest in a retail strip center, for example, I I prefer to have 13 tenants or more. I actually don't know how I came up with 13 tenants. It just sounds like it's better than 10, but getting 20 is not (laughs) good. So I've seen a lot of deals over time when there's multiple tenants. I kind of average that out. But the point is that um, for me, being in a triple net uh, single tenant deal, this is not the right fit because... For the same reason as we talked about about the malls, like, you know, if you did a single 10 and triple net deal on a um, Best Buy or so a Circuit City, you know, 15 years ago, and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to collect the coupon, right? Because that's essentially how people look at it, right? Triple net means that they're paying all the expenses associated with the property and they're just sending you um, a, a monthly check. And so... And I'm simplifying that, but that's kind of what it means. And so it's kind of like people view it as a bond. And if it's a very high-rated company, they're like, yeah, this is a great coupon clipper, right? That's kind of the way people look at it. But the way I look at it is that that's just not going to work for me because what happens if it is Circuit City and in five years from now, you're empty and rents aren't where they were before. And now all of a sudden, because there was a wrong part of the cycle that, you know, Circuit City dropped out in 2009, I'm just making this up. And now with the rents you can get currently in the market, You're not going to be able to cover your debt service. The next thing you know, you're literally foreclosed, right? If you lose your single tenant and you cannot cover your debt, you're foreclosed at some point. So there is, in some ways, people think triple net uh, single tenant deals are lower risk because they're highly rated companies. And in those ways, they are lower risk because they are high rated companies. But from a diversification standpoint, they're higher risk. And I do not invest in triple net. I've actually never done a single tenant triple net deal in 16 years. Um, Okay, awesome. Yeah, and by the way, I also want to point out for the audience that I think you did a really good job, uh, without you maybe even realizing it, of like, what should be going through your mind as a passive investor when you're looking at a deal these days with technology shifting very quickly, internet, self-driving cars, robots coming up to displace jobs. You walk through the the, the exact right process, in my opinion, about, and actually make some really good points, like electric cars may not need the same parts, they may not need as many parts, people are going to buy them online, they're going to be cheaper online right? And assuming that you're not talking about a repair shop, which is a different story, there's still going to be the need to repair the cars. You know, is that the best tenant going forward? So even if you are interested in triple net, you've really got to ask yourself those questions and be sure you're 100% confident in, let's say, a 10-year view, which it depends on the term of the opportunity, but a lot of those triple nets are 10 years. So I think you did a really good job of walking through why you need to be careful. Uh, And not just for triple net, but what you should, the, the steps you should go through looking at any opportunity in real estate.
0: Awesome. Okay. So yeah, thank, thank you so much, Jeremy. So go, let's kind of, if you can try to sum up the how, how is it that you can really be diversified? What are some of the steps you can take to make sure that you're doing it? Um, if you can just kind of sum it up, I'll give you three or four minutes to really dive into to the nitty gritty there.
1: Sure. So I, it'll just be a recap, correct, of what we talked about?
0: Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then if there's anything that we missed on the how, just, yeah, kind of cover it.
1: Great. Right. So so from, from a diversification perspective, you want to try to be as low risk as possible. You're going to want to be spread across whatever number of things you're comfortable with. Just I, We never talked about it, but I actually am currently in over 70 different LLCs, which is kind of hyper diversified, but it's because I do it full time and I'm able to find all those. Most people cannot get to that number. And it's not really reasonable to be honest uh, but anyway so um step one is you want to take a look at your pie of alternative investments and carve it out into the number of slices that you're comfortable with whether that's 10 different things 20 different things whatever that number is for you you got to make sure you pre-carve it and know how much money to allocate to each opportunity okay that's step one step two is you then want to take a look at various opportunities start to um, think about the asset classes and you can start to weed out asset classes and say look I don't like the idea of investing in an indoor mall right now. I don't know where that's going to be in, in two years, let alone 10 years. So you can kind of pull that asset class aside and start to just have a list of asset classes you're comfortable with, right? So then you, now you say to yourself, okay, I know which asset class I'm going to look at. Now we have just got to get diversified across them, okay? Then you can take those asset classes, start to look at deals in those asset classes and look at them in various geographies purposefully. So in other words, not just where you live for 100% of your pie and also across different operators and start to compare them, contrast them. What's interesting is that if you're investing like me for cash flow, it's very different cash flow levels on a similar asset in Los Angeles and in Kansas City, right, or in the Midwest or in the South. Or they're all different levels. So you may decide for yourself, like I do, that you know, I look for higher levels of cash flow, so I tend to invest out of state, outside of California for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part, to get higher cash flow. That could be a geographical decision you make to actually eliminate some geographies. You also may say, like I have, that I'm not comfortable being in Florida for hurricanes across most asset classes. For me, self-storage, I'm still okay with. There's not usually any windows. The, the damage is typically not nearly as severe, and the buildings aren't as high. Often, they're single story. So I'm okay going into self-storage in Florida. I've done that many times. And I think Florida is a great market for many reasons as far as growth of population in the next 10 years and retirees and a lot going for it with self-storage specifically. But would I invest in a part building in Florida Depends on the location. If it's really inland, maybe. You know, so you can start to weed out some areas you're not comfortable with. You may not be comfortable with certain economies. Do you want to invest in Flint, Michigan or not? Just I, I don't mean to pick on Flint, but it's making the point. So, um, so you weed out some geographies, and then you start looking at everything else. And then when you finally got some deals you like as far as asset classes and ge- geographies, then the question is, do you want to make a bet on that operator? And even though I went in the reverse order, the operator is the most important thing, but I just want to kind of under- explain the diversification process. So, the operator who you're making a bet on, in my opinion, is even more important than the asset class itself. Because, like we talked about, if they mismanage a building, it could be the best building in the best location. But if they run into the ground and don't manage it properly, you're going to get foreclosed. The keys are going to go back to the bank. So, you're going to want to really investigate operators, um, compare them, and decide who you're comfortable making bets on. And at the end of the day, by going through that process, you're eventually going to get yourself pretty well diversified. I also want to be clear that if anyone's starting out or fairly new, This is a long process to go through. This is not going to happen in a day or a month, Uh, and in most cases, even a year. If you're starting from scratch, I would say that if you've been able to carve your pie out to 20 deals over six months, you have not been picky enough, right? You've not been careful enough. So it could be a multi-year process to get properly diversified. It's really worth it from peace of mind and for other reasons from risk perspective, but it takes a long time. This is not like an overnight get rich quick type of philosophy whatsoever.
0: All right. Perfect. Um, any other thoughts on that before we move in? I actually have a couple little questions just about, just about you specifically. So
1: Yeah. I was going to say, you know, um, as far as the how is finding opportunities, which is not so easy, mm. one great way is to take a look at some of the crowdfunding sites. They have a lot of volume on them. Just be aware that some of the crowdfunding sites take a portion of the profits and some management fees. So the returns for the same level of risk will be higher. Sorry, the returns will yeah. lower the same level of risk. If you're going through a crowdfunding site versus finding that opportunity directly with the spot with the operator. But if you're busy and you're working and you don't have time to go create a network to find opportunities, crowdfunding sites can be a good source for opportunities. It's worth noting, like I'm always happy to talk to any investor to help network. I might be able to help them to find opportunities, for example. So, you know, networking, if you're going to become a passive investor, networking is absolutely key. I think about every single deal I find, it's always through some type of networking. So probably worth mentioning those things as well. And I'm sorry, you were going to go to some other topic, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. And actually, some of what you just mentioned, uh, like team, uh, finding, helping other investors out, some of that is, is queued up with me. So one of the questions I was going to ask is, uh, how many in assets are you currently diversified in?
1: Well, I'm in over 70 LLCs. So that's how many assets it is currently. I'm in the middle of about 15 different sales. And I don't know the, I actually need to count the exact number of LLCs I'm in. So I don't know what's going to net out to you if the sales all go through, but it's, okay. it's many different assets.
0: Perfect. The next oh, question I, that I...
1: I, I'm sorry, I should also clarify that I'm in some funds, like I'm in one mobile home park fund that has like 80 assets.
0: Okay. Okay. Very owned, interesting. You know, yeah.
1: across like many states. So it depends on which way you're looking at it, right? Because you can get really diversified in a fund that goes across states and assets and everything else. That's a whole, again, there's all these different levels of diversification you look at.
0: Perfect. Next question. What is the highest amount you've ever put into one? No, not ever. I mean, in the 70 that you have, what's the most you've ever put in one of those 70 plus?
1: So that's a good question. You mean dollar wise or percentage wise?
0: Dollar wise, what's the most you've ever put into one of those 70 assets?
1: Okay. So um, what, I won't, what I won't disclose if it's okay is the actual dollars because I usually keep that confidential. What okay. I will say is that the, the highest percentage I've ever put into one deal, which was just recently, um, I have to run the math. It's probably like 5%. It, I'm, it's actually a little bit under 5%. Okay. Um, so, and now, when you think about it, I, at 70 different things, theoretically, if I spread it all evenly, I've actually you know less than 2% in each single one.
0: Mm-hmm. So for
1: me to hit like 3 4 5% in one means I've really – you know that's an operator I invested with many, many times that I want to make a specific bet on. There was consolidation of some funds into one, so the money got pooled from uh, I think it was six funds into one. So all of a sudden, okay. if I wanted to continue on, I had six times the exposure I would normally have into one entity, but same operator. So okay. it wasn't a complete. It, I didn't get much. I wasn't worse off as far as operator exposure, but from a specific entity exposure, I was worse off. But that was I thought it was a bet worth. It. There's still less than five percent.
0: Great. What if somebody, let's just um, say for the, ne- for the next question, since we're not saying specific dollar amounts for you, let's um, exchange it for, let's say somebody only had 250000 and they wanted to be diversified. What's the smallest amount of asset investment that you could see them being able to get in so they could still be uh, diversifying it uh, between, you know, two and 5% of their portfolio?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So that's a really good point. You know, it's hard for someone with $250,000 to get properly diversified into these types of opportunities because typically the minimum investment might be somewhere between twenty five dollars and $50,000, for example. So even in the $25,000 case, which is much harder to find the $50,000 you're, that's a best-case scenario, and you're talking about getting across 10 things, which some people may be comfortable, some people may not. Some people prefer to be at 20. Now, if you only find $50,000 opportunities, which is more common, then you're talking about being in five things. Now you're really starting to get into a point where like, you're increasing your risk, and that's a personal preference. I've seen people do it, for sure, um, but that person may be better off waiting until they have 500000 or a million to get more properly diversified. Another thing that's another solution they can look at, though, is the crowdfunding websites um, sometimes offer very low minimums. So they have their own funds that they have um, mm-hmm. that are, uh, you can invest in that are um, kind of private uh, REITs, real estate investment trusts. And I believe that Realty Mogul and Fundrise, at the moment anyway, I think you can invest either 1000 or 5000 minimum into those. The problem is that you could put 5000 in one, 5000 in the other, but there aren't like 20 other of these types of options. So for someone who has a really small amount, those could be good starting points. But I would tell you that, honestly, my opinion is that if you're starting with 250, you're putting yourself, you're increasing your risk because you can't get the level of diversification that most people feel comfortable with. Most people look for more, less than 20% into each individual thing. And at that 50,000 level, you're exposed at the 20%. So...
0: You're coming out with more and more value every question. Thank you so much, Jeremy. (laughs) Uh, My next question that I have for you is, um, you know, you've been doing this for several years, many, many, many years. Um, You've been full-time since 11 years ago, I think. Yeah. And um, I guess my question is, when you're investing, uh, you know, there's this compounding interest effect. So now that you've been doing it so long, how often are you able how often do you get to a point where you're like, I've got too much money coming in. I got to hurry and find another uh, thing to put it into. Is there, does that make sense?
1: Great question. So the way that I work is that's always a problem because I always like to have extra money aside. At the same time, I find there's two different philosophies when it comes to this. Like at this part of the cycle where it's really hard to find opportunities, that's even bigger challenge. And I have this conversation with people like practically every day is, you know, what do I do with my money? Because there's not really opportunities out there. So There's one type of person like me who is okay sitting on the sideline and waiting for a downturn to come and maybe for an adjustment in pricing, just having peace of mind knowing that I'm getting it at the right um, price and that in exchange for having less return down the road because I've lost the time value of money while I'm waiting. um, I've not been able to put my money to work while I'm waiting and get that return. um, I have more peace of mind, right? Because I don't have to worry about a downturn hitting that asset because I'm investing in it today and maybe at the wrong value, right? Mm -hmm. The wrong price. Then there's the other philosophy of like, kind of what you're talking about, where it's like maximizing every dollar. What do I do now? Um, because I don't want to sit on this money. Like, I'm completely uncomfortable. You know, it's funny because the, the waiting makes me very comfortable, right? It's peace of mind. The other person, the waiting makes them completely uncomfortable. And they're like, yeah, you know, inflation's eating away at my money. And they're theoretically correct, right? And so I can't have it sitting here. I've got to do something with it. I'm going to get behind. Those people tend to look for more short term opportunities, like for example, hard money lending, where you're lending money to people who are flipping homes, rehabbing them, because they're short, shorter term, six month, 12 month type opportunities. There are risks associated with those, you know, in a single family, the prices don't always go up, as we know. And if you get caught at the wrong time, making a loan at the wrong time, you definitely have risks. So I like to call that more musical chair, depending on the market, um, you just have to be comfortable with it and be very careful with your loan to value amounts. But that's very common what people do if they really want to put their money to work. I don't have that mentality. I actually do have some hard money because I did put a little bit to work and I'm like, I've got to do something with it. But a lot of my money is sitting on the sidelines right now and I'm just waiting. Um, Very, very subjective.
0: Excellent. I've got three more questions queued up and they're all good. They're going to bring a lot of value to the listeners. I'm excited for them. So number one, tell us your 30-second pitch on what is (laughs) FIBI.
1: FIBI or For Investors, by Investors is something I co-founded in 2007 with one other person. It's a nonprofit organization. It was the result of me sitting in meetings like networking meetings in, around town in Los Angeles, for five years real estate meetings, where there were a lot of sales pitches. And I just kind of, when I stopped, got out of the corporate world, went to full-time passive cash flow, I said, now that I have more time, I can actually start meetings where the core foundation is that there is no sales pitch. So if you go to any FIBI local meeting, and unfortunately, all our meetings for the most part are in Southern California, but if you go to any of those, um, the one thing that we really, really are stringent with is that you should not get a sales pitch, and if you do, I really want to hear about it, because that's yeah. our core foundation. So that's been going on for over 10 years. We have over 25,000 uh, members, and uh, most of the meetings we have are in Los Angeles, there's, um, there's one right now in Orange County. We used to have one in San Diego. Uh, the reason why we haven't expanded is because we're very picky with taking on chapter leaders who we've known for years, so we know're true experts in real estate, and most importantly. Who we know will not pitch and will not sell. So by definition, we can't really expand into other states unless we took on partners who really trust in other states. Just because we don't know who the chapter leader is and what's going on in the meeting, we're very, very careful. with
0: it. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing that. And uh, I think there is so many places where you're not even sure what they what they're there for because there's so many pitches. You're you're trying to decipher. Is What is this value? Is this value really a pitch? Or, you know what I mean? So I, I really appreciate that you do that, that you focused on it, that you're helping so many different people, 25,000 people, not 2,500 people. Man, 25,000, that's I will say
1: that we literally, um, I think we've lost money on it every single year and we continue to lose money on it every single year. Not a ton, but we still lose money on it. And But it's worth it just from a networking perspective and you know, we just try to cover the fee of the venue from wherever we have the meeting. In exchange, we, car- we charge a door fee for each, because we have to, for each attendee to cover the, but we still don't usually cover the fee across most of the meetings. So, um, but anyway, yeah, if you go to com or search on FIBI, you'll find the meetings, but unfortunately, it's only for people that are really in Southern California.
0: So. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much. Okay. All right, Jeremy, thank you so much for all of the information that you've shared with us today. I really, really, really appreciate it. You are nothing but a value adder. I really appreciate your time. So, uh, last question is just how does how do the listeners find you? How do they get a hold of you? If they have more questions on what you're doing, how they can be investing passively more safely, how would they g- reach out to you?
1: Sure. Yeah, the best way to reach me is through email. Uh, J Roll, J R O L L at Roll Investments, which is R O L L Investments with an S uh, dot com. So J Roll at dot com. Definitely the best way to reach me. Happy to help anybody any way that I can. Um, so definitely Absolutely. feel free to reach out to me if you've got questions or if you want to schedule a call, it's not a problem.
0: Thanks again, my friend. Until next time, think outside the box. Thank you so much for listening to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. And if you got value from this episode of the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Give us a written rating and a review. We'd really, really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. But until next time, Think outside the box.